Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is Luke chapter 23, where my Bible is open to. Luke chapter 23. I'm going to encourage you to be turning to Luke, the 23rd chapter in your Bible. It's where we're going to begin our study in just a moment as we get ready to present a very special edition of Q&A. And what makes this a special edition is the fact that Q&A is generally a Sunday night phenomenon here at Lakeside, where once a month I get to take questions that are submitted by uh, by our members here, by our kids here, sometimes even questions by folks who are outside of this congregation, and I get to take those questions and study on them and try to formulate and put together some ideas and give some Bible answers to those various questions. And every now and then, I'll get such a good question, such an important question, that I'll bump it up into the Sunday morning slot because that is when we tend to have just the mostest visitors, and we do have lots of visitors with us this morning. And this is a question, I believe, this morning that deserves to be uh, addressed and talked about to just the widest audience possible, and that's what we intend to do for these next few minutes. We do have a great number in attendance this morning, even considering waking up this morning and seeing some of that white stuff spitting from the sky. It's good for us to be able to be here in a nice, warm place like this. We all got here safely, and we can focus our hearts and our minds upon the Lord and worship, and we've had just some excellent singing this morning. Appreciate a wonderful prayer that was uh, prayed just a few moments ago. It's just good for us to be together and encourage one another in the things that are good and right. Lots to talk about this morning. We want to get right to it in Luke chapter 23. This is Luke's account of the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus has been sentenced to death at the hands of this bloodthirsty mob. They cried out, crucify Him, crucify Him. We're then told in verse 32 of Luke chapter 23, verse 32 says that two others who were criminals, they were led away to be put to death with Him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him and the criminals, one on His right, one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, saying, This is the king of the Jews. Verse 39 now. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Recently I had a conversation with a couple of friends on Facebook on the subject of salvation. Now normally I tend to steer away from deep religious discussions on Facebook because I have found that social media and that platform is just not always the most productive and most fruitful kind of environment for those kinds of discussions to take place, especially when you're talking with folks who have opposing and different viewpoints and beliefs and convictions. However, the people that I was talking to in this particular discussion were a couple of folks that I, I knew pretty well and I knew their temperament and I knew that they would not be argumentative or ugly, but instead just wanted to have open minds, open discussion, and would be respectful and considerate of others who would contribute to the conversation. 
This discussion all started with my friend saying that we are saved by grace and faith alone. He went on to say that works have no part, have no bearing in a person's salvation, particularly, and he spent some time talking about the work of baptism. has no bearing on whether or not a person is saved. I, of course, came into the conversation a little bit late, but I offered up just some simple thoughts, first of all, about, about the Bible's definition of faith, what the Lord means by faith when He uses that word, directed them to some thoughts in James 1 and James 2, talking about Abraham's faith and the connection between faith and words. We went back and forth on that a little bit. It was good discussion. Then I got the opportunity to start asking some questions about baptism. And how every case of conversion in the New Testament, it always culminated in a person being baptized. That baptism is the critical step that puts a person into Christ. That it is the moment when a person is washed and cleansed and forgiven. My friend then, as I pointed all of those things about baptism out, my friend thought about it, I guess, for a little while. Then he replied with this question that lies at the center of this morning's Q&A. He asked, but Josh, what about the thief on the cross? What about that? What about that thief on the cross? And I'm going to guess that many of you as well, as you have had conversations with your friends and neighbors and loved ones, you've had the very similar experience of talking with them about salvation And eventually, at some point, it ends up finding its way to Luke the 23rd chapter to this guy that we know as the thief on the cross. It is in many ways a safe zone for folks who want to deny the necessity of baptism in God's plan for salvation. And it is, I believe, it's kind of the, it's kind of the low hanging fruit of all the arguments that are leveled against baptism. That thief, he wasn't baptized and he was saved. Well, I don't have to be baptized and I'll be saved. But you know what? For as much solace and comfort as folks seem to have found in the story of the thief on the cross, I believe a closer examination of this man and his circumstances and the dispensation in which he lived and just the overall message and picture of the Bible, I believe it will reveal that there is actually no comfort to be found in the belief-only salvation that is often propagated by the story in Luke chapter 23. And this morning, for these next few minutes, I want to show you exactly why that is. I want to give you four talking points. And these may be some four good ideas worth jotting down, just making a note of. Four things that will help you in answering that question as you experience it from your friends and your neighbors and your loved ones. It is a question that is asked so often by so many. Now, before I get into that, can I just spend maybe a minute right here, right now, and actually say some good things about this story and about this guy that we know as the thief on the cross? I'm afraid that all too often, when we immediately mention the thief on the cross, immediately, our mind just goes into defensive mode. And we just start pointing out all the misapplications of this story. And we start talking about all the things that are wrong with the people that have to say about this particular story. And as a result of that, we end up missing the truly wonderful thing that happens here in this account. For example, just think. This man actually begins, his story begins by him hurling abuse and insults at Jesus. Matthew's account tells us that in the beginning, both of the criminals reviled Jesus. Matthew 27, 44. 
But somewhere during that morning and afternoon as they hung there in the hours on the cross, somewhere along the way, this man started to have a change of mind started to have a change of heart. He ended up coming to some realizations. And Luke points those out in this text. Verse 40, he recognizes that not only does God exist, but that God is to be feared. He recognizes, verse 41, that He Himself is a sinner and that He deserves to die because of His sins. He recognizes, verse 42, that Jesus is the Lord. He is the King. That he has a kingdom and so he begs for Jesus' mercy to be remembered in that kingdom. And then most amazingly of all, verse 43, Jesus grants that request. And he extends to him the blessing of what I am convinced is forgiveness and salvation. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And so regardless of all of the misapplications that people make from this account, let's not overlook the greatness of what happened here on that day in that moment at Mount Calvary. A man who was guilty of sin and who was overcome with fear, he turned to God, acknowledged Christ Jesus, asked for help, and he got it. That is awesome and we ought to praise God for that. And you know what? If you or I, if we were in that exact same situation, we would have done well to have done the exact same thing that that man did. However, and this is a big however, you and I are not in the same situation as that man. And so for us to think that we then can be saved in the same manner that he was, or to think that his story eliminates our need to be baptized, I believe is nothing short of dangerous. And that's why I want to share with you this morning four dangerous assumptions that you make whenever you try to use the thief on the cross to argue for belief-only salvation. And that all begins with this first assumption, and that is it just assumes that the thief had never been baptized. The first question that I always have when folks start talking about the thief and how he was never baptized, I always just immediately ask, well, well, how do we know that? How do we know that he was not baptized? Now, somebody might be quick to jump in here and say, oh, come on, Josh. Is this the argument that you really want to make here to somebody? That the thief was baptized at some earlier point in time and maybe the Bible just doesn't give us all the specific details of that? I'm not actually making that argument at all. I'm just saying that it is dangerous to assume that he was not baptized. Well, somebody might ask, well, why exactly would that be such a dangerous assumption? Well, look with me in Matthew chapter 3, please. In Matthew chapter 3, we know that this man obviously was a contemporary of Jesus. And that means as well that he would have been a contemporary of John the Baptist. And what do we know about John the Baptist? Well, Matthew 3 tells us this about John the Baptist. Matthew 3 verse 1, In those days... John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Drop down to verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. I'll tell you this. A lot of people were being baptized by John. Now, who am I or who are you to say that this man, this thief, possibly could not have been amongst that number? Somebody says, oh, come on, Josh, this guy's a criminal. You know about criminals, don't you? He's a bad man. Why would a bad man come to John and want to be baptized? Well, you know what Luke's account of John the Baptist 
Luke tells us that even tax collectors came to be baptized by John. Luke chapter 3 and in verse 12. Tax collectors was just about as bad as it got in New Testament times. And even they wanted to be baptized. In fact, let me add maybe just a little extra wrinkle here. Look with me in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, here is a, a, a detail about John's baptism that I think gets overlooked a lot. In fact, I think I overlook it a lot. In Mark chapter 1, look in verse 4. In Mark 1 and in verse 4, Mark says that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. For the forgiveness of sins. Now, I believe that that had to do with what was going to come whenever Jesus would establish His kingdom. But the point is, John was baptizing a lot of people. And the Bible says he was baptizing people for the forgiveness of sins. Perhaps, perhaps this thief was one of those folks. I'm not saying that he was. I'm just saying that you can't automatically assume that he wasn't. In fact, as I think and as I begin to contemplate about this whole thief argument, how oh, the thief was never baptized, I find it interesting that not a single person in all of the book of Acts made this argument about, well, the thief wasn't baptized, so I don't have to be baptized. Nowhere is that excuse or is that statement made in all of the New Testament. Look at me in Acts chapter 2, for example. In Acts chapter 2, we know this account well. 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. Peter stands before this great audience. He preaches Jesus. Look at verse 36. This is kind of just a good summary of the sermon. Verse 36 of Acts 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Drop down to verse 41. So those who received His word said, But Peter, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't baptized. Why do we have to be baptized? Is that what your Bible says? No. Verse 41 says, So those who received His word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I would be very quick to warn people about not making an argument that nobody in the history of Scripture has ever made. That's usually not a good place to hinge your doctrine, is it? And so right here is a good starting point. It's a good just kind of jumping off point, getting folks in the text. I don't know if the thief was baptized. I don't want to say that he was. But I know that it is very, very dangerous to assume that he was not baptized. Just like this second assumption is very, very dangerous. Arguing that we can be saved in the same way that the thief was saved without baptism, well, what that does is that assumes that the circumstances of this man are not relevant here. Because I'll tell you, I happen to believe that this man's circumstances, I believe those are very relevant. Because his circumstances are very, very unique. First of all, somebody asked, well, what makes this circumstances unique? Well, I'll tell you why. First of all, this guy is talking to Jesus personally, in the flesh, person to person. 
He's not talking to the Lord in the way that we do when we pray to God, when we talk to the Lord through the, through the eye of faith. No, He is having a one-on-one conversation with the Messiah, with the Christ. And that is very significant. That is significant because of what Jesus could do and often did do while He was here upon this earth. Look in Luke chapter 5, please. In Luke chapter 5, this is the account of Jesus healing the paralytic man. You remember that this man was hes paralyzed and he was let down the roof by his friends. They tried to bring the man to Jesus, but the crowd in the house, it was just it was so many people, they couldn't get through the crowd. So they ended up ripping the roof off and letting the man down through the roof. Notice what the Bible then says in verse 20 about those guys who did that and then what Jesus says to the man. Luke 5 verse 20, When Jesus saw their faith, He said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered them, Why do you question in your heart? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know, verse 24, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Jesus had the authority to speak people's sins forgiven just by saying the word. In fact, two chapters later in the book of Luke, Jesus would do it again with the sinful woman in Simon's house, Luke 7, verse 48. The point is, while Jesus lived on this earth, He had the authority to forgive whoever He wanted, whenever He wanted, however He wanted. And the thief on the cross is one such example of someone who received that kind of direct, on-the-spot mercy and forgiveness of the Lord because he was in the very presence of God in the flesh. I believe just that right there, that makes makes his circumstances very, very unique and very different from ours. Furthermore, would you please take note that while the thief is having that interaction with Jesus, he is... He is affixed to a Roman cross. He is affixed to that cross and in just a little while, He's going to die. Which means then, if Jesus had turned to the man in Luke 23 and maybe about verse 43, if He had said to the man, Truly I say to you, you need to come down from the cross, you need to find some water and you need to be immersed, well, what would happen? Well, what would happen is that man would die in his sins. Why? Because he's strapped to a cross. He has no chance for release. And I make that point because it just kind of seems, when you talk with some folks about baptism, it kind of almost sounds like the way that they talk, kind of sounds like you'd think that they were strapped to a cross. People throw out all kinds of crazy hypothetical scenarios that almost make you believe that they're just strapped to a cross and they can't be baptized. Look, if you tell me that you are strapped to a cross and that you're going to be dead in about two or three hours and you have just come to understand and realize that you need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, but you can't get off of this cross because they're about to kill you, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm going to pray that God is going to receive you into paradise by His mercy and by His grace. Why? Because you're strapped to a cross and you have no chance for release. But can we just be honest for a second? Does that describe anybody in this room? In fact, I'll just take that a step further. That doesn't describe anybody that I have ever met in my entire life. People talk about the thief's circumstances as if that's something that we all just share in common. 
Listen, we share almost nothing in common with this thief on the cross. In fact, I'd be so bold as to say that his circumstances, they are one of a kind. That there's never been anything like this before or since. It was a one of a kind thing. And again, somebody right here, they might say, oh, come on, Josh, are you you really going to use that as your argument here? Are you going to use the he was dying and he didn't have a choice argument? I'm actually not making an argument yet. I wouldn't use either of these first two points to make my arguments about salvation. All I'm saying is, is you can't point to the thief over here and say that he's just like us and we can be saved just like him. That's not so. You want to throw out hypothetical scenarios. And we hear those hypothetical scenarios all the time as a defense for why they don't, people don't think they need to be baptized. If you want to throw out the hypothetical scenario of the guy in the middle of a desert and he learns the gospel right there on the spot, but he looks around and there's no water to be found anywhere, then yeah, maybe we can talk a little bit about grace. But you know what? If you want to talk about you and me, where I've got a heated pool of water like 10 feet behind me, then we need to talk about grace and baptism. The thief's circumstances were one of a kind. And I do not believe that they provide a pattern for salvation for us today. And I believe that that is especially true whenever you recognize that the thief, he lived under a completely different covenant than you and I live today. Because thirdly, Whenever someone wants to argue that we can be saved like the thief was, well, it assumes that a change of covenants, yeah, that's just not really that big of a deal. That's just not all that important. Which is actually kind of interesting to me because I believe we all understand that the difference between living under the old covenant and living under the new covenant, that's a pretty big deal. That's a really big deal. For instance, when you sin... You do not buy a plane ticket to Jerusalem and fly all the way halfway across the globe, go to Jerusalem, find you an animal, walk over to the temple, sacrifice this animal so that you can then go through the procedural actions of atonement that are described in the law of Moses. Do you do that? I don't do that. None of us do that. We don't do any of those kinds of old law-keeping things. We do not keep the festivals that are mandated in the law of Moses. We do not keep the Sabbaths that are mandated in the law of Moses. We're not even Jews. We're not even a party to those things. Look with me in Hebrews, the 8th chapter. In Hebrews chapter 8, in this epistle that says so much about the changing of the covenants, about the change from the old to the new, the Hebrew writer says this in Hebrews chapter 8, look in verse 6. In Hebrews 8 and in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Drop down to verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Those passages and many others like them, They speak pretty clearly. And I'd like to think that all of us, if not most of us, understand it when the Hebrew writer says that there has been a change in the covenants. We all seem to understand that. That is, that is until you start talking about that thief on the cross. Suddenly everybody just forgets about this changing of covenants. Well, let me just settle once and for all about the thief and about the covenant that he lived under. The thief on the cross, he lived under that old covenant. 
He was subject to the old law, the law of Moses. How do I know that? Well, I know that because of this very book that we're already in. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Just flip a page. In Hebrews chapter 9, the Hebrew writer actually tells us when that new covenant came into effect. In Hebrews chapter 9, look in verse 15. Therefore, He, Jesus, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will or a covenant or a testament is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will, a covenant, a testament, it takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. This new law, this new law that I will remind you, it is the law under which you and I live and operate today, it did not come into effect until the death of the testator. It did not come into effect until the death of Jesus. That means then that the thief was not even amenable to the terms of that new covenant. Because he had conversed with Jesus, he was pardoned by Jesus, he was saved by Jesus before Jesus had even died. He was subject to a completely different covenant than you and I are subject to today. And I thought about that a little bit as I prepared this lesson. There's something about that that I find to just be absolutely scary and frightening. For me to look at all of the salvation passages that are given in the New Covenant, all the things that the New Covenant says about how a person goes about being saved today, and then for me to then reach back to an Old Covenant salvation story and say that, that's how I'm going to be saved, that is a frightening way to approach the Scriptures. I'm not looking to the Old Covenant for my salvation. We already read in chapter 8 where it says that Christ's covenant is better. I don't know about you, but better, that just sounds better. Look at Colossians, the second chapter, please. In Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians 2, Paul used some language here that's just right exactly in line with what we just read the Hebrew writer to say, which maybe kind of gives some credence to the thought that Paul maybe wrote the book of Hebrews. But Paul says in Colossians 2 some things about the changing of the covenant. In Colossians 2, Paul wants to help these Colossians with some of the Judaizing teaching that was going on at that time. There were folks who were trying to convince them and tell them that what you need... You need the old law. You need the law of Moses. And you need all the stuff that came along with the law of Moses. Paul says, no, you don't. You don't need that. In Colossians chapter 2, look in verse 13. He says that you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That's a reference to the Old Testament, the old law. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul says that that old law, it was nailed to the cross. It has been fulfilled. It has served its purpose. It is done. We're living under the new covenant now. Well, somebody might ask, well then, alright, if we're living under this new covenant, how do we go about being saved? How do we go about being forgiven under the new covenant? Well, just back up in the two verses on top of it. Look in verse 11. In verse 11 of Colossians 2, In Him, in Christ, in Him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, verse 12, 
having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Paul points out and highlights and pinpoints that baptism is the moment of salvation. In fact, I really like this verse a lot because it makes clear that yes, baptism is a work, but who's primarily doing the work? It's God doing the work, the powerful working of God. And I want you to notice from this passage that salvation under the new covenant, it involves something that the thief on the cross could not do. Even if he wanted to, he could not do it. Salvation under the new covenant, it involves an understanding of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Did you notice verse 12? Look at it again. Baptism involves being buried with Him. Buried with Jesus and then being raised with Jesus. How could the thief even, let's just imagine, let's just imagine, say the thief did get free. He's maybe miraculously allowed him to, 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 to be set free right there on the spot. He's no longer affixed to the cross. He's free. He's got his range of motion. He, he can be baptized now. How could the thief be buried with Christ and be raised with Christ when Jesus hasn't even died yet? You can't be buried in the likeness of someone. You cannot be raised in the likeness of someone who has not yet even died. You see that the baptism that is required of you and I today, it wasn't even available to this man. In fact, I'll take that a step further. The faith that is required of you and I today, not even that kind of faith was available to the thief. Look in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, here's a verse that I think it's really just kind of kryptonite to the belief like the thief salvation mentality. In Romans 10, Paul talks about some of the necessary components that are needed in order for us to be saved. He says in verse 9, Romans 10 verse 9, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, notice this, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead... You will be saved. Question. Could the thief do that? Could the thief believe that God had raised, past tense, raised, could the thief believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead? No, he could not. Because the thief didn't live long enough to see the risen Lord. He died without exercising the Romans 10, 9 kind of faith that the Bible describes. And so if somebody's going to say that the thief proves that you can be saved without baptism, then I guess the thief also proves that you can be saved without believing that Jesus rose from the dead. But of course the thief doesn't prove either of those things. And that's because the thief lived under an entirely different covenant than you and I today. All of that then leads to this fourth and final assumption. What may be in some ways, maybe the most important, maybe the one that we really want to focus the attention of our friends and our loved ones and our neighbors probably more than any other area. And that is, whenever folks are convinced that they can be saved in the same way that the thief was, well, it just assumes that the teaching of the New Testament is really just kind of trivial. That the teaching that Jesus did, that the teaching that His ambassadors, the apostles and the disciples, that the teaching that they did, eh, it's just not really to be taken so seriously. It's not to be taken so literally. 
You know, here, for example, is a, a command that Jesus has given. Like, for example, you know, love your enemies. Well, you know, I don't really think that's what Jesus meant by that, love your enemies. He meant something entirely different there. And start looking for all these kinds of loopholes for why we don't feel like we have to do that. It just ends up trivializing the very words of God. And I believe that this may be the most dangerous assumption of them all. Because it takes something that is heavy, and it says, eh, it's really not all that heavy. It's really a whole lot lighter than it appears. But my question is, how can anybody open up the New Testament and read with an honest heart all of those passages about salvation, all of those passages about baptism and say, eh, it's just not really essential for me to be saved. How can anybody that has a good and honest heart come away and be so dismissive and reach that kind of conclusion? Listen, folks, regardless of what the thief did to be saved, When Jesus rose from the dead, He commanded baptism as a condition of salvation. And then He commissioned His disciples. Talked about the Great Commission last Sunday morning. He commissioned those disciples to preach and teach that exact same message. And when you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. They just did that everywhere. Saying that and doing that. Baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when you read those apostolic writings, those guys continue to just reinforce that very same principle. Baptism is essential for salvation. And I realize that we do not have time to read all of those passages, but right here, that's a good top ten list to start with, of verses that very plainly, plainly teach the necessity of baptism under the new covenant, the Christian dispensation, the Christian age under which you and I live today. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved, Mark 16, 16. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38. As many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, Galatians 3, 27. Baptism does also now save us. Well, somebody says, well, well, what about the thief? Stop. Just stop right there. That man's salvation is not even available to you today. We've already seen that. This... This is what is available to you and to me today. Jesus tells us, tells us very plainly. He tells us that we need to hear His Word. He tells us that we need to believe in Him, put all of our faith and trust in Him. Jesus tells us that we need to confess Him, openly acknowledge Him before men. Jesus tells us that we need to repent, to turn away from sin. And Jesus tells us, yes, we need to be baptized. Not in some kind of uh, metaphorical sense. No, literally be immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins. It is so simple. Maybe that's the part of this that maybe gets us so frustrated sometimes when we're talking with folks and we just want to grab them by the shirt collar and shake them. It just is so simple. But we want to be patient with folks. We want to bring them along and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. The teaching of the New Testament is clear and it is unopposed. You must be baptized in order to be saved. Now I want to say, I do love the story and the record of the thief on the cross. I'm so so thankful that God saw fit to include that in the Bible. It is a powerful demonstration of the love and the mercy and the grace of the Savior. And while I'm never going to be able to fully relate to the thief's physical circumstances, I do believe that I can relate to him in his spiritual circumstances, 
In the sense that I, just like Him, I am an unworthy sinner. Because of my sins, I deserve death. But I need the grace and the forgiveness of the Lord. That's the position He was in, and that's the same position that I'm in. But you know what? Without knowing this guy's history, and with knowing that his imminent death provided all kinds of constraints for him, and with him living under the law of Moses, living under the covenant of Moses, and then with me understanding that I have this wealth of clear teaching from the covenant that I do live under today, for me to then look at all of that and to come away and to still say that I can be saved like he was, I believe at this point it's just not even being intellectually honest. We need to be able to help folks to see with patience and with love and with kindness. We need to help them to be able to see the truth of the gospel so that they can then obey the gospel according to the covenant of Jesus Christ. Perhaps though this morning, it's not about us needing, at least not at this moment in time, helping folks out there. It may be that there are some folks in here, in this very audience, in this very building, under this very roof right now, who need some help in that obeying the gospel stuff. I hope you have seen this morning that it does take faith. There's no doubt about that. But it takes a certain kind of faith. It takes an active faith, an obedient faith that will submit to Christ ultimately in baptism. And I should say this. There is only one baptism. Sometimes folks, they'll, they'll agree with you about baptism. They'll say, yeah, that baptism is important. You need to do that. Everybody needs to be baptized. Sometimes there's some misunderstanding about what the purpose of that baptism is. I didn't include on that list of verses a second ago, but Ephesians chapter 4 probably needs to be added to that list because the Bible says there that there is one baptism. And that baptism is not an outward sign of an inward grace. That baptism is not a baptism into a local church directory. That baptism is not something that you do weeks or months later because you were already saved. No. The Bible teaches that baptism is for a single purpose. To have your sins washed away. So we ask this morning, do you need your sins washed away? The water is ready. By God's grace, He is waiting. He has provided you this opportunity in order to do something about the condition of your soul. You know, maybe I'm being a little bit assumptuous here myself. But when I think about that thief on the cross... And I consider what a penitent heart he had as he spoke to Jesus. I consider the things that he understood and recognized in those final moments of his life. I am fully persuaded that if he had somehow been able to live under the covenant of Christ, he would have been baptized. I don't think there's any question about that. He knew who Jesus was. He came to understand that Jesus is the King. And entrance into that kingdom under Christ's covenant requires baptism. You need to be baptized this morning. All things are ready for that to occur. You just need to come forward and make it known. Why don't you do that right now while we stand and while we sing?